Uh, so scripture reading is going to be Matthew 1, 18 through 25. We're going to continue in uh, ch- the first chapter of Matthew. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord, and may he bless it. Well, good morning. Well, thank you for being here today. I hope you all have a wonderful Christmas week leading up to Christmas. I guess it's what, Monday of next week. Uh, but if I'm Byron Bradshaw, the pastor here at Calvary. If you have any questions about Calvary, feel free to see me after the service today. And the mission of Calvary Bible Church is to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. But also, part of being a biblical follower of Christ is understanding doctrine, understanding what you believe. So every January, we reserve the whole month to talk about systematic theology. So this year, I think last year we talked about bibliology, what is the Bible, how do we know it's inspired and inerrant, and then the year before that is who is God. This year we're going to be talking about what are angels and what are demons and what is spiritual warfare. So that's going to be the month of January. And today we are in our second week of a three-week series on Christmas. We're just spending three weeks just unpacking the Christmas story. We spent uh, last week in a passage of Scripture that, you know, many of us just kind of nap through. Uh, a bunch of different names, but as I said, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is perhaps one of the most important passages in all of the Scripture, because it proves that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is, what, the Messianic seed, he's from the line of Abraham, he's the Messianic divine king forever, and that's what we talked about last week, and um, today, we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and I want us just just humor me for just a moment. Okay, just humor me. Okay, and don't worry, I'm not going to get you to do jumping jacks or anything like that. Um, what I want you to do this morning is I want you to set aside what you know about the Christmas story. All right? I know we all know he's born in a little town called Bethlehem and all of the Christmas songs say it, okay? And But I want you to just set what you know about the Christmas story aside for just a moment. And I want you to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 with fresh eyes. Because wait a second. Matthew 1, 18 through 25 is not Mary's side of the story. Perhaps I just missed this day in seminary. But Matthew 1 is actually Joseph's side of the story. Luke 1 through 3 is Mary's. And Matthew 1 through 25 is Joseph's. Just, just take what you know and set it aside. Joseph is betrothed to a woman named Mary. They are closest in our culture. We'll talk about this in my sermon. 
But the closest we have in our culture is there, betrothed, which means in our culture, engaged. Okay? And all of a sudden, she's pregnant, but not with his child. Let me just, you know, let's just talk about it. What if that happened to you? <laughs> okay? That what if that happened to you? The person that you love knew, you knew that she was pregnant, but not with your child. That's Joseph. But in the midst of this heart-wrenching, difficult situation, he proves to be a righteous and godly man. Because he does three different things. When people really, in a sense, aren't looking at him, we see Joseph prove he is a righteous man. You know, it's easy in life to talk the walk, but not walk the walk. Am I tracking me on that? I had a kid in elementary school, when I was like third grade, said that, you know, his second cousin was Hakeem Olajuwon, and his, you know, parent's friend was Michael Jordan, and, you know, and, you know, even as a nine-year-old, I figured it out, right? What's the, what's the thought in my, prove it, back it up, right? A soldier proves his bravery when bullets start flying. A hairstylist proves their talent when you walk out with your hair the way you like it, right? A mechanic proves their competence when they fix your car, right? How does a Christian prove that they are righteous? How does a believer in Jesus Christ prove that they are godly, prove that they truly want to follow the Lord? That's what we see in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We see a man named Joseph, and it says, prove. He is called righteous and godly, and he proves it by acting in a certain way. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. That's where we're going to be today. You know, I, I really wrestled with this passage because, you know, it's easy, and it, and it might be. Maybe I interpreted it wrong. It's cool. Uh, you could talk to me after service. I'm, I'm approachable. Um, I might be scary, but I really am approachable. Um, you know, I've always kind of thought that this story was all about Jesus, and it kind of is, so don't think I'm speaking her- heresy here. But I really think the main character of Matthew 1, 18 through 25 is Joseph, because it talks about his perspective in this story. So let us very quickly set the stage for our discussion today. The book of Matthew is written by a Jewish tax collector to a Jewish audience in the first century. And what is he setting to prove? He is setting to prove that this guy named Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, that this guy named Jesus is truly the messianic king from old. As we talked about last week, throughout the Old Testament, the, the picture of the Messiah becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And then all of a sudden, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the Jews Jewish audience in the first century have corrective lenses. They can see that Jesus is Messiah with 2020 vision. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, proves Jesus' identity as the Messianic divine king forever. And Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, provides his purpose. Why did Jesus come? And keep in mind, what were the Jewish nation expecting? They were expecting a Messianic king, but he came the first time to be the Messianic savior. So if you have your scripture, today we'll be looking at verses 18 to 25. But before we get into our passage too deeply, let's just talk about a uh, theological issue and doctrine that we all kind of take for granted. Let's just talk about the importance of the virgin birth, okay? There is some debate on the virgin birth. I mean, some more liberal scholars doubt that the virgin birth happened because physically... 
a virgin birth can't happen, right? That's kind of their, one of their justifications for it. But the last time I checked, God is not bound by the laws of physics. I'm just saying. Um, and I'm just going to say something. In my opinion, the virgin birth is a non-negotiable doctrine of the faith. Let me say that again. The virgin birth is a non-negotiable doctrine of the Christian faith. It is a hill that we should die on. You know, there are a lot of things in Christian churches today that we can agree to disagree on, right? We, we, can, we can have arguments over lots of different things. That, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you could be a Christian and believe that. But I believe that the virgin birth is a non-negotiable doctrine of the faith. Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Why? Yeah. Because if Mary and Joseph did some funny business while they're betrothed, if they, if they, you know, shacked up, so to speak, okay, and Mary got pregnant by Joseph, then what? Well, according to Romans chapter 5, he would have inherited a sin nature from his father, Adam, and he would have been insufficient to pay for the sins of the world. That even if Jesus would have lived a sinless life, the fact that he would have inherited a sin nature from Adam would have invalidated his sacrifice. Jesus had to be born of a virgin because he had to be the spotless lamb to take away the sins of the world. But what is the proof... Let's just talk about this. What is the proof that we all inherit a sin nature from Adam? It is death. It is the fact that young infants pass away. Because young infants do not have the capacity to sin. Therefore, the only reason they pass away is because they inherited their sin nature from Adam. Death is a consequence of sin. And since they pass away sometimes, in the most tragic of ways, we know that they inherited their sin nature from their forefather. Listen, Jesus was born of a virgin. That is a non-negotiable doctrine of the faith. There can't be any gray there, friends. It has to happen. This, this is what it says in the Creed of the Council of Constantinople. I'm going to read just a paragraph about the identity of Jesus. And I'm reading a uh, church history book right now, so this is probably why I would like to read this to you. I used to think that the creeds of the early church were like, uh, I don't know, witchcraft or something, but they're actually wonderful. Um, it says this, We believe in one God, the Father of Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things invisible and visible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of the same substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, amen, and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Uh, there are some that ask a really good question. So, okay, Byron, okay. If Jesus was not born of Joseph, then how could he inherit, how could he be the descendant, as we talked about, of Abraham, Judah, David, and Zerubbabel? It's a good question. Because people say, well, if Joseph is not his biological father, then how could he inherit Joseph's line? If you actually look at the, at the genealogies, one of the reasons why they're so important is, as I said, Matthew is Joseph's story and Luke is Mary's story. Go look at them. I studied that this week and I found it fascinating. Mary and Joseph's line are identical until it comes to 
Zerubbabel. That Zerubbabel had two sons. Mary came from one son, and Joseph came from the other son. Why is that important? Because Zerubbabel is the last messianic prophecy, the last promised messianic ancestor to the Messiah. So as Zerubbabel, there is a fork in the road. You track with me? In God's providence and sovereignty, he had Mary come from one side and Joseph come from the other. So in a sense, it doesn't matter that Joseph, even if you justify, he's not biologically his father, both lines are from the same messianic prophecies. It's pretty crazy. But also, who is Joseph to Jesus? He is Jesus' adopted father. And an adopted child, what, inherits all of the same privileges and honors as a biological child, right? So that is a treatise of the virgin birth, TMI. So um, that is the backdrop of our discussion on Joseph's side of the story. So as I said, the virgin birth is a non-negotiable doctrine. Both Mary and Joseph come from Zerubbabel, David, Judah, and Abraham. Both are of the same line, identical line, up to the two sons of Zerubbabel. And as I said already, uh, with the virgin birth, the treatise kind of out of the way, um, before we enter the text, what I want you to do is I want you to kind of set the story aside. I want you to see this story with fresh eyes and a fresh perspective. See it from Joseph's perspective. This is in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, proves that he is the Messiah. This, these verses prove that he is the Savior of the world. Now notice here, it says, Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now what's the key word to understand in that particular sentence, that particular phrase? It is to understand what this word betrothed actually means. What does it mean in the first century culture? You know, the closest we have in our society, in our culture, to betrothment is being engaged. But it's actually far more serious than just being engaged. Betrothed comes from the Greek word menestuomai, and the closest we have is engagement, but it's more serious than that. In the first century, being betrothed means this. Listen to this piece of, this explains what this word means. Israelite marriages in the first century were arranged by, for individuals by parents, and contracts were negotiated. I'm kind of glad we don't have arranged marriages anymore. Okay. All the teenagers in the room say, okay, after this was accomplished, the individuals were considered married. So let me, hang on. Israelite marriages were arranged by individuals, by parents, and contracts were negotiated. After this was accomplished, the individuals were considered married and were called husband and wife, even in the betrothment period. They did not, however, begin to live together. Instead, the woman continued to live with her parents and the man with his for one year. The waiting period was the betrothment, was to demonstrate the faithfulness of the pledge for purity. If the wife was found to be with child in this period, she was obviously not pure, but had been involved in an unfaithful sexual relationship. Therefore, the marriage could be annulled. So Mary and Joseph are considered married. 
Even though it says betrothed, even though we have in our culture the closest thing as an engagement period, they are legally married, but they are living separately for a one-year betrothment period in order to determine both of their purity for the marriage. But what I found interesting, once you kind of dig a little bit further, if a spouse is found to be unfaithful during the betrothment period, what the spouse, the faithful spouse can take the unfaithful spouse before the judges of the city and before the walls and have them tried. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 22, 23 through 24, the unfaithful spouse can be stoned to death. Hang on. Put all that together. Joseph and Mary are legally married. And they're in their one-year betrothment period to figure out if Mary and Joseph will both be faithful and pure. And then Mary gets pregnant. Set aside the conception of the Holy Spirit for just a moment. And just see this picture. And Joseph has the ability at this moment in time to call Mary before the judges of the city, have the trial on the walls, and for her to be stoned to death. Verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. We know that that is the case. They're in the period of time where they are proving that they are pure. And in verse 18, keep in mind, friends, when does Joseph, okay, when does Joseph find out that Mary is conceived by the Holy Spirit? He doesn't find out till verse 20. So right here in verse 18, he's taking her word for it. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Let me just, let me just ask you real quick. Um, let's just say that uh, uh, your wife is pregnant and you know it's not your child. And then she says to you, well, I was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Okay? You'd be a little skeptical, wouldn't you say? So Joseph here, no wonder he behaves in the way he does. Verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, notice that, and Joseph, her husband, not her fiance, her husband, notice what it calls him, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned her to send her away quietly. You notice here in verse verse 19, it calls Joseph a righteous man and he planned to send her away secretly. I want you to notice here in verse 18 and 19, so Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph is having a hard time taking her word for it because the Holy Spirit doesn't, in a sense, tell him until verse 20. What's, what's really going on here in verse 18 and 19? What's happening in Joseph's mind? He has to be totally heartbroken. I mean, this woman that he loves, the love of his life, there seems to be some difficult things going on. And then what else does he have to endure? He has to endure the questions that he's going to receive. I mean, friends, keep in mind. This is not Huntsville, okay? Huntsville is considered a medium-sized city. This is, they don't know what a medium-sized city is in this particular culture. They live in villages. Think about what Joseph is going to endure. Mary herself is going to endure. She didn't ask for this either. There's going to be questions, whispers in the village. Everybody knows each other's business. And he has a lot of different questions. Joseph is heartbroken. He's trying to figure out what to do. And then he says, in Joseph, her husband, being a righteous, godly man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. A righteous person 
does the right thing when no one is looking. A righteous person does the right thing when no one is looking. In secret. What does he do? He, number one, did not want to disgrace Mary. He had every right to. He had every right legally, according to Deuteronomy chapter 22, he had every legal right to call her before the city, you know, and put her on trial for being unfaithful. And he did, did not want to disgrace her. And then number two, he planned to send her away in secret, secretly. He did the right thing when no one was looking. He just wanted to be gone. He wanted the marriage and the betrothal to be annulled. Because, friends, listen to me. There's no other logical conclusion. Logically. Because the Holy Spirit hasn't, speak, hasn't spoken to him until verse 20. The only conclusion is that she has been unfaithful to him. That's why he's acting in this way. And he's still in the midst of his pain and trials. I mean, how would you feel if that happened, okay? We'd be scorched earth, okay? Burn everything down to the ground. You would be angry. But he doesn't do that here. He honors Mary in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his difficulty. And he does the right thing when no one is watching. But then notice he gets confirmation of the story by the Holy Spirit in verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now notice this first phrase. But when he had considered this, when he considered putting her away in secret, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Joseph is a righteous and godly man, number one, because he does the right thing when no one is looking, and number two, because he trusts God when things don't make sense. Because he trusts God when things don't make sense. Why do I say that things don't make sense? Because that doesn't make any sense. Again, set the story that you know in the back of your mind, your Sunday school, to the side. How in the world does the Holy Spirit conceive a child? I, I don't know if I know how that actually happens. But Joseph here trusts him. And notice here what it says, Joseph, son of David. Why does he say that? It takes him back to the beginning of the book of Matthew, that Jesus is of the line of Abraham, Judah, David, and Zerubbabel through Joseph's ancestors. Joseph, the son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your child. Why would he be afraid? Well, in the back of his mind, I would imagine... He was thinking, why would he be afraid? Well, if she was unfaithful to me now, maybe she'll be unfaithful to me in the future. Or, what will people think of me? What will people think of Mary? But Joseph here trusts the Lord when things don't make sense. Verse 18 through 25 is the story of Joseph. He proves himself to be a righteous man because he does the right thing when no one is looking in secret and he trusts the Lord when things don't make sense in his mind. But then in verse 21 is where he gets further proof. The identity of Jesus is in verses 1 through 17, but the purpose of Jesus is found in verse 21. Notice it. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. A righteous person is also made righteous by the blood of Christ. The Savior has come to pay for the sins of the world, that he will save his people from their sins. Let's just kind of talk about this real quick. She, you, you shall call his name Jesus. 
The word Jesus, we think is kind of unique. It's really, I mean, it is unique, obviously. I'm, don't speak blasphemy here, okay? But anyways, it's the Hebrew name Joshua. You know, if you were to look up the Septuagint in the, the Greek transliteration of the Old Testament, you would see that Joshua, son of Nun, is Jesus, Jesus, in that particular translation. That there are other people in the Bible called Joshua. Joshua, the son of Nun, who led the people into the promised land. Joshua, the high priest in the book of Haggai, in the book of Zechariah. And so this man named Jesus, Joshua, his name is really not all that uh, unique. But what I find interesting is his name, what his name actually means. The name Joshua means Yahweh is salvation, or that Yahweh saves. Think about it. Joshua of the Old Testament, his name pointed to the fact that Yahweh saves the nation of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. But this Jesus, this Joshua, does not save the people from the land of Egypt, but it saves us from our sins. That this Jesus is not pointing to Yahweh's salvation, but he is Yahweh's salvation. He is God's salvation to all people, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is Yahweh's salvation. He's the embodiment of God. He's the embodiment of the salvation. But there's confusion, right? Because this isn't according to God's plan in the Jewish mind in the first century. Because their picture of the Messiah was Messianic king, correct? Wait a second. What do you mean he has to save us from our sins? That this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Jesus came first to be the Messianic Savior, and he comes second to be the Messianic King forever. That there is an interruption in their idea of who the Messiah is in the first century Jewish culture, and that he has come this time, the first time, to be the Savior of the world, to be Yahweh's salvation for his people. I mean, I don't know if an angel's ever spoken to you in a dream before. Um, anyways, we won't talk about that. I, I kind of, maybe, <laughs> okay, but uh, I, I hopefully I would believe this. It's still difficult to understand, right? I mean, Joseph proves he's a righteous man because he does the right thing when no one is looking. He honors Mary, he puts her out quietly. Because he's having a hard time understanding how does the Holy Spirit conceive a child, based on Mary's testimony. But then Joseph here trusts the Lord, even when things don't make sense. But if Joseph had even the last shred of doubt remaining, verse 22. Now this all took place to fulfill what was written, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Where does this come from? This is an Old Testament quotation. Do you know where that's found? Isaiah 7.14. Put it all together. When Joseph hears that verse, he realizes that it wasn't a mistake. He realizes it wasn't just a random event in history. But he realizes that the birth of the Messiah Savior was part of God's sovereign plan since the beginning of time. Isaiah 7.14 confirms to Joseph and to us today that Jesus' arrival by the virgin was prophesied of old and that all of the events happened underneath God's sovereignty. In other words, what? This wasn't a mistake. It wasn't just something that happened. 
but that God has arranged the events of history so that Jesus would arrive at a perfect moment, that, that God in His sovereignty would have both Mary and Joseph from the exact same line. That no matter what somebody would say, well, he's not Joseph's son, therefore he can't inherit the promises of the Messiah. Uh-uh. He's from Mary's too. This, man, this story of the Messianic Savior arriving is a neatly wrapped gift with a bow on it to perfection. It is absolutely perfect. And to Joseph here, he has confirmation that this story is not just a mistake. It's not just something that happened. It's not just a punishment of Joseph. But it's a gift that has been given to both Joseph and Mary. Um... Friends, we should trust God even when we don't understand. Can I just speak? Um, we as human beings are, con- are control freaks, okay? We just are. We want control. And when things are out of our control, what do we typically do? We either typically kind of give up on everything or we just press in harder and harder and harder and harder until that ball heats up and explodes, Right? But things happen in life beyond your control. Oftentimes, when you're following the Lord, when you're trusting Him, things don't make sense. But even in the midst of things not making sense, God still asks us to trust Him. He still asks us to believe and to follow Him accordingly. Friends, let me just ask the question. Is there something in your life that you just don't understand? You're having a hard time wrapping your head around it. Even there, the Lord asks you to believe in Him. Even there, you need to trust Him that He has a sovereign plan over all things. Because Joseph here could have questioned what God is up to. He could have thought, God, you know, you were ruining my life. <laughs> okay? Because this, the love of my life is pregnant not with my child. And God comes to him and says, I know you can't understand that she is conceived by the Holy Spirit, but it's been part of my plan. Since the Garden of Eden, it's been part of my plan since Isaiah 53. It's been part of my plan since Isaiah 7.14, Micah 5.2. It's been part of it. Trust me. So then the question is, what does Joseph do? You know? If we really set aside kind of our preconceived notions of the story, let's just look at it with a fresh perspective. He honors Mary when no one else is looking. He trusts the Lord when he has confirmation. And then what does Joseph do next? Man, this is, this is where he proves his mettle. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and notice what it says, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called him Jesus. A righteous man, number one, does the right thing when no one is looking, number two, trusts God when he can't understand, and obeys God, number three, when God calls. He obeys God when God calls. What did God call Joseph to do? He called Joseph and said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Marry her. She's been faithful to you. I know it don't make sense because those things don't happen, right? Okay? But it, but it happened. Joseph 
awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. In the original language, that's all aorist tense. I take that to be a punctiliar understanding, an immediate understanding. What, what I say is that J- Joseph awoke and married her. He went to the courthouse and signed that deed, right? He didn't delay. He didn't question God. He followed. A righteous person obeys God when God calls. It took Mary as his wife and kept her virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. And notice that uh, <laughs> he proves that he obeys God in the calling of God because, number one, he goes out, wakes up from his dream, and marries Mary. Despite not understanding everything, but having enough to kind of figure out, figure it all out. But also, what else does he do here? He obeys the calling of the Lord to call His son's, Mary's son's name, Jesus, Joshua. I mean, how many of you have ever had a parent try to determine your child's name? I had that with my father, okay? I told him that thanks but no thanks, politely, okay? I mean, Joseph here demonstrates he's faithful. Not only does he marry her, but he names the son the exact name the Lord asks for. And why is Jesus called Jesus? Is because Jesus is not pointing to Yahweh's salvation, but he is Yahweh's salvation. He came to pay for the sins of the world. Joseph proved he is righteous. He takes Mary to be his wife. He kept her pure until she gave birth. He proved that he trusted the Lord when things don't make sense and obeyed God despite it. A righteous, a godly person, put it all in a nutshell if you have your notes, A godly person does the right thing when no one is looking. Number two, trusts God when things don't make sense. And number three, obeys God when he calls, when he asks us to do something. Um, You know, it would have been easy for Joseph to kind of walk away from this whole situation. But he decides to do what is right. He decides to obey the Lord in exactly the same fashion as the Lord asked him to do it. The question I have is now, so what? How does this apply to our life? A quarterback proves his competence by completing a pass. A surgeon proves his competence by fixing a hip. A hairstylist proves that their talent by fixing your hair exactly the right way. And a Christian proves that they are godly, they are righteous by doing those three things, by Obeying the Lord, doing what is right, and trusting in Him. So the question I have is, so what? How do we apply it to our life? You know, we look at the Christmas story as just the story of Jesus, but it encompasses more people than just that. We see His parents on full display. In Luke, we see Mary's side of the story, and we see in Matthew, Joseph's side of the story. And my conclusion, my application for us today is to be like Joseph. I know it's maybe cliche but it's the truth let us be like joseph let us be people that are known to be godly and righteous that are consistent when no one is looking you know (laughs) that's that's the test of a righteous person amen that you would obey the lord when no one is around you know it's easy when I was in corporate America working at a job I couldn't stand for three years, um, getting level, lovingly called all sorts of names every single day, it was great. Um, I saw four-letter words. It was wonderful. Um, 
But there were lots of opportunities at that particular job in those three years to kind of take a little bit off the top. And I saw people do it. You know, we as people, we as Christians, we should do the right thing when no one is looking. Let us be like Joseph. Let us not think about the audience that isn't there. But let us think about the audience that is there. God, what do we represent to him? Let us be people that do that. Number two, let us trust the Lord when things don't make sense. I mean, how many of you have ever known a Christian that has gone through a very difficult, a very painful, a very uh, arduous time, and they come out the other side? Those are the people like Joseph. That, you know, God will allow things in our life that we can't understand by our own intuition but the Lord in that space asks us to obey and to trust him. And then three, application number three is let us obey the Lord in his calling. My question for you is what is he calling you to do? What is the Lord asking you to do today? I think sometimes in life we, we think about a calling of God as, okay, I'm going to go sell my house, sell my cars. I'm going to give it all to the poor. I'm going to go move to the desert in Egypt and be a monk. It doesn't have to be that extreme. Maybe the Lord's asking you a calling to forgive somebody. Maybe the calling of the Lord is to be part of a small group, to take a go-out ticket in the back and fill it out. Maybe the Lord is asking you a variety of different things. But the righteous person, let us be like Joseph. Let us... Do the right thing when no one is looking. Let us trust the Lord when, he, when life doesn't make sense. And let us obey his calling. But also a righteous person is made right. Matthew one twenty one says this. Is he, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. There is an uh, in, intuitive piece in that particular verse. The intuitive piece, for he will save his people from their sins. What's the intuitive, intuitive piece? That we can't save ourselves from our sin. The scripture says this, Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not made right by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. In other words, what? That you can't earn heaven. Amen? That there are not enough good works that you can stack on top of each other to make yourself go to heaven. Why? Because the standard of heaven is perfection. Because God is perfect. How many good deeds can we do in order to become perfect? That's why Jesus Christ came on Christmas Day, so he could save his people from their sins. God knew that we could not make our own way to heaven, so he sent Jesus. Heaven can only be attained by faith in Christ Jesus, by placing our sincere faith in him and in him alone. And Jesus Christ came on that Christmas morning not to just be a cute baby in a manger, in a cave somewhere in Bethlehem, but he came to live a sinless life, untarnished by the sin nature of Adam, to die on a tree to pay for my sin that, so that I could go to heaven. 
If you do not know where you stand with God, if you do not know where, you, where your relationship with him stands, I would encourage you today to place your faith in him. Believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. If you have questions about that, if you want to ask more questions, uh, feel free to see me after the service. I know I'm probably a little intimidating, but it's cool. Um, I, I promise I'm not that bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I would encourage you to see me after the service. You want to know more about how to become a Christian and how to be made right before him. Pray with me. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the story of Joseph. How, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very precarious situation. The woman he loves, who's telling him the truth, it's hard to understand. And Lord, he does the right thing. He honors Mary, even, at, even in the midst of his own heartbreak. He trusts in you, even when he can't understand what it even means to be conceived of the Holy Spirit. And then, Lord, he is obedient to your calling upon him to marry Mary and to call his name Jesus. Lord, thank you for examples like Joseph, that this imperfect person can truly follow you in the midst of their own imperfections. Lord, I uh, thank you for Calvary. I uh, thank you for the message of the gospel. Um, and you have come and you have saved me from my sin. And that, Lord, you have given me eternal life if I would just believe in you as Lord and Savior of my life. For those that do not know you, I pray that the reality of their sin and that the Spirit of God would open their eyes to believe in you as Savior. Thank you for this church. I pray that we have a blessed Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.